Well, good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? Good, good. LifePoint family, welcome back. It's good to be with you. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, you're new here at LifePoint, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, welcome. My name is Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus. Uh, before we jump in this morning, uh, just a few things. We talked about this last week, but I want to go over it again, just give you a snapshot of the next six, seven uh, weeks here, because things are going to be a little different here at the Delaware campus as far as our schedule. So reminders, here we go, right? This Friday, Good Friday services. For the first time, we're doing Good Friday services. So we'll meet at our Lewis Center campus, all of our campuses at 5.30 and 7 o'clock, all right? I hope you'll come. hope you'll invite others and join us at as we uh, worship Jesus, as we reflect uh, on the meaning of the crucifixion. All right, and then we move to Easter Sunday. So next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we've got four services here, four gathering times here at our Delaware campus, 8 a.m., 9.30, 11 and 12.30, all right? Every hour and a half meeting, uh, the 8 a.m. breakfast is served there. So thank you for all of you who are pivoting to the 8 a.m. Breakfast will be at 7.30 in the meeting room here. And so hopefully that makes it easier for you to be here that morning. If you're pivoting over to the 12.30, we'll have ice cream on the way out. And uh, again, just thank you for Pivoting to one of those, making room at the 9.30 and the 11 on Easter Sunday. Please invite. Uh, let's be praying uh, big toward Easter Sunday that God will do what only God can do for his glory and for his name's sake. And so please invite others. Uh, we've got 36 hours of prayer uh, after Good Friday services all the way up until Easter Sunday morning. So if you use the LifePoint Ohio app, uh, you can go to the events tab there. And uh, there's an event created called 36 Hours of Prayer. Sign up for an hour slot there and uh, just be praying with us. Let's do that as a church. Be praying toward Easter Sunday morning. All right? So that's through Easter Sunday. A reminder then, after Easter, for three weeks, we're going to keep our 8 a.m. service. All right? That Easter 8 a.m. service. So for the rest of April after Easter, we'll have 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11. All right? So we'll have three different times making room as we continue to grow. I just I don't want us to gather on Easter, have a lot of new folks join us, and then right after that, not have room for people until our renovation is finished, all right? So if you are new, we're renovating right now, and so we'll have three services for the rest of April, and then May 7th and May 14th will be online, all right? Online only while we destroy this wall and push things back, and then we're back meeting in person May 21st here at the Delaware campus at 9.30 and 11, all right? I'm sure you have all of that with absolutely no flaws whatsoever and a perfect understanding of what's going on. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate uh, to ask or reach out. All right. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 4 this morning. Uh, We've been in this series that we've been calling The Ascent. We've been looking at these mountaintop moments and experiences throughout the scriptures talking about God's purpose for us and his provision for us. And uh, I've, I've sort of started each week giving a recap of all of those and walking through sort of the big idea of the series. This sounds terrible. I'm going to skip that this morning because we have so much just to cover in Matthew 4. And so we're going to go straight into Matthew 4 uh, here in a moment. I do want to say if you're here today and you're not uh, a believer. So <clears throat> before we hit a mountaintop, we're actually heading into the wilderness, right? We're, we're following Christ into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted uh, by the devil over a period of 40 days. Matthew 4 hones in on the final three of these temptations before that time period is up. And I think if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, maybe some of this sounds strange to you. The Bible just assumes uh, the existence of Satan, and uh, that may be hard for you. So here's what I would say. Um, 
two things I'd say. One, I think if you really you're asking questions about, I mean, does the supernatural exist? Is the physical world all we can see or is there a spiritual world? So I think once you get past that and you say, well, I think that maybe there's a, a God or a being who governs the world who's good. If you've gotten to that place, it's not illogical then to say, hey, if, if personal good exists, then maybe personal evil exists as well in the spiritual realm. Secondly, I would just say this, just if you're like, man, I don't know if I can get there all today, withhold judgment, listen, and just ask the questions, does what the text teaches help you make sense of some of what you experience in life, all right? And for those of us who are believers, as we head out into the wilderness and we look at these moments of temptation, there's just a lot here today. I'm gonna do my best uh, to walk through it. There, there are basically two ways. As I was studying this past week, it's always nice when you study and kind of everybody's saying the same thing about the text. This is not one of those times. Um, there, there are uh, different thoughts on, hey, what's the main purpose of this, of telling this and us knowing this and seeing this and what's, what's the main teaching points? And there are basically two different different ways uh, that people seem to approach the text. And I'm going to summarize for you is this. Christ as example, Christ as example, and then Christ as fulfillment. Christ as example and Christ. So when I say Christ as example, a lot of folks hone in on, highlight uh, the, the spiritual warfare aspect of this. How do you fight temptation? How, and so we look to Christ as example. How do we fight the enemy? How do we combat uh, the enemy's temptation, his lies. And there's absolutely truth to that. We'll hit on some of that today. But then there's also Christ's fulfillment. And some folks really highlight, hey, there's no way to understand the wilderness experience and Jesus going out 40 days into the wilderness without looking back to the 40 years in the wilderness that Israel spent wandering and being tested in the wilderness and the way they spectacularly failed during that time, but the way that Christ spectacularly succeeds. And in fact, we'll see that throughout the course of time that Christ, as he is combating the enemy, keeps quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, I'll talk about that later. It's Moses speaking to the second generation of Israel right after their 40 years in the wilderness. So there's all these parallels between their 40 years in the wilderness and Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness here in his time of testing. So it's Christ as fulfillment. And looking back, we've been saying it each week, you can look back in the Old Testament and you always see that no matter how great some of those heroes were, no matter how great some of the works, they all failed in some way, shape, or form. It's, it's waiting for the person who's going to come, who's going to succeed in every way and be victorious. That's Christ. And so we'll hit on both of those throughout the course of this morning. Uh, let me give you the background. Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized. All right? So Matthew 3, he's baptized, and we hear God the Father say, Behold, this is my beloved Son. My beloved son with whom I am well pleased and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. It's this great sort of spiritual victory kind of moment. And then the next thing that happens is this, Matthew 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days fasting, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. To be honest, it seems like the last phrase there is unnecessary, right? But uh, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So I want to note a couple of things here. After baptism, before his launch of public ministry. Anything that's important. Context is important. So right before this, right? So this is right after his baptism. I mentioned that a moment ago. It's this great moment of sort of spiritual, spiritual high top sort of moment. Victory moment. He's baptized, fulfills all righteousness. God says, this is my beloved son whom I love, whom I'm well pleased with. 
Spirit comes down and then right after that he goes out into the wilderness to be tested, tempted for 40 days. There's this pattern that you see oftentimes in the scriptures, right? That, hey, after moments of spiritual victory, after really great moments, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes what follows that is a moment of testing or a season in the valley. And you and I, so, so you say, is that instructive for us? Is that, absolutely. Should we be afraid of that? Absolutely not. We should be aware of it, though. We've seen it happen in this church a number of times. People get baptized or a big leap forward in faith. And then after that, they're like, Kale, things got harder. You know, wasn't this supposed to get easier? No, it gets better, but that doesn't always equate easier. Sometimes those moments, those valley moments come right after those spiritual mountaintop moments. And did you catch, you say, so why are we not afraid of that? No, we should just be aware of it. And in some ways, we should actually be encouraged by it. You say, why would we be encouraged by that? Because God is growing you. So did you catch verse 1? It says, who, who, who led Jesus out into the wilderness? It's the Spirit. Jesus is led by the Spirit. So the devil's the one doing the tempting in order to try to cause Jesus to fail. But it's God who's ultimately in control. He's the one leading Christ into the wilderness. So that there's this time of, of father-filtered, God-ordained testing in Jesus' life to see, hey, what's going on in Christ's heart? What's going on in your heart? Ultimately to help him as he moves on into his mission you and I's times of testing ultimately to help us as God shapes us into the image of Christ. So if you're here today and you're going through a time of trial or a time of testing, the temptation sometimes is to say, what did I do wrong? <laughs> and I think in some ways you need to flip that and say, maybe you did something right, or this is very purposeful on God's part that God, if you are, if I can put it this way, if you're under some divine discipline, a time of testing and trial, God is shaping you. He's using that testing purposefully to shape you into the image of Christ. He, lo he disciplines those that he loves. And he puts us to the test. He tests us to refine and grow our faith. So rather than being discouraged by moments of difficulty and seasons of testing, you keep your eyes fixed on Christ and actually be encouraged that the Father is working in your life purposefully to shape you into the image of his Son. Now, Secondly, this is right after Jesus' baptism, but right before his start and his launch of his public ministry. Matthew 3 is Jesus' baptism. Matthew 4 is the time in the wilderness. Do you know what Matthew 5 is? The Sermon on the Mount. This is right before Jesus gets up, launches his public ministry, delivers the greatest sermon ever, and says, man, the kingdom is here. And so when we look at that and we say, okay, it seems like and this is a pattern in Jesus' life. After times of really intense uh, movement and then right before another big moment, right before he chooses the 12 apostles, he will go out into the wilderness for this time, this intentional time of solitude and silence, fasting and prayer, meditating on the word of God, fixing his mind on God's purpose for him, the mission that God has given him, ultimately for the cross. And once again, we should be asking, hey, is that instructive for us? Should we be patterning, patterning our lives in the same way? Times of intentional solitude and silence. Time in the word. Rhythms of fasting and prayer in order to focus. God, what have you called me to do? The answer is absolutely. You and I need times of intentionally slowing down, getting away from the hustle and bustle, intentional times of solitude, 
times of silence. And listen, I get it. This is crazy in our world. We're constantly plugged in. But we have to intentionally unplug. Spend time in the word. Rhythms and seasons of fasting and prayer. Meditating on the word of God. Times in silence where we can hear from God and re-clarify, Lord, why have you put me on this earth? What have you called me to do? And some of us, you're like, well, Kayla, I don't, I'm not launching any sort of public ministry. It, it, that's not the point. Every single one of us is called into ministry. If, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you're saved, here's the phrase we use here oftentimes, if you're saved, you're sent. If you're saved, you're sent. If you're here today and you don't know and love Jesus, our hope for you is that you come to know and love the Lord. And when you give your life to him, when you trust him with your life, you're going to find he doesn't save you to just have you sit and say, hey, now you're saved. Sins are washed clean. Just kind of wait. Wait around. <laughs> it's, then he sends you back out into the world for the sake of mission, for the sake of reaching people to make disciples of all nations until Jesus comes back or you go home to be with him. And for you to do that, for you and I to be faithful over the long haul, for us to be faithful, not just, not just to get really excited for a week, or a month, or a few years, but for us to be faithful over the long haul. As you think about your life, you're like decades, Lord willing, decades, we need times of intentional silence, solitude, time in the word, rhythms, and seasons of slowing down in order just to be with the Lord. And so here, here's the thing that I've if we're honest, so maybe I'm just preaching to myself right now. I, like, I, I look at myself and I think, Kale, if you're going to make it over the long haul, right, you need times of just slowing down. Um, my sense is other people are here as well, right? That, that many of us, uh, we would never probably say this out loud and say that we believe it, but many of us live like this statement is true. I know Jesus needed to slow down, but I don't. Anyone else willing to look at that and go, you would never, if I ask you, right, do you believe that statement's true for you? I don't know that any of us like, yep, <laughs> I'm good. But our actions often speak differently. That we look at Jesus' life and we see him after times. Do you know there are times that he just disappears and doesn't tell anyone? <laughs> like all day of ministering to people. And then there's a bunch more people trying to find him. And the disciples are like, where'd he go? <laughs> And he's just off in the wilderness spending time with the Father. And then they go to him, they're like, Jesus, we got a lot of people who need you. He's like, actually, we need to move on to the next town. I need to preach there. That's my mission. He gets away with the Lord. Because here's what happens. When you get away with God, you get clarity. You get perspective. When you're constantly plugged in, I'll read to you. One, one pastor and author said it this way. It's so good. He said, it must be that preparation for ministry demands significant times of solitude. We simply can't maintain a radical God-centeredness under an unbroken barrage of human interaction. Let me read that again. We simply can't maintain a radical God-centeredness under an unbroken barrage of human interaction. And I would add to that digital interaction. That there's just something that happens when you're just busy, busy, busy all the time and you're constantly interacting with people or you're constantly interacting with the screen that you lose focus, you lose clarity on what is it that I was put here on earth for? You and I need, if I could say it this way, we need times where we disengage from the world so we can more meaningfully engage with the word. I didn't put that on the screens, but write that down, right? You need to disengage from the world at times so you can more meaningfully engage with the word and take time to slow 
down. I'm grateful for uh, Morgan in my life in this area. I, I don't do this perfectly. I've gotten, I think, I think the Lord has walked me through a season of just getting better at this over the years. Early on, right, in ministry, what I found myself doing, Sunday through Thursday is kind of my work week, right? And so Friday morning, I was like, I'll work a half day on Friday morning. And, uh, and then inevitably what would happen Saturday night is my mind would start drifting back, right, to sort of sermon land and thinking about the message. And, and so she looked at me, she's like, do you realize that's what's happened? You, there's, no, there's not a single day during the week where you're not working. You're working Sunday through Thursday, that's your official work week, but then you're working half day Friday, you're trying to sneak some more in there, and then Saturday nights, and it's like, well, well crap, right? You're, you're right. And so over the years, she and I worked hard on, hey, you need to disengage, like Thursday after the day is done, you need to be done until Sunday morning when you pick it back up. Some of us, you need to have that conversation this week, whether it's with your spouse or just with yourself, right? Someone looking at you going, man, you never slow down. And you, you've gotten so used to it that you maybe don't even realize it anymore. And frankly, right, I think if the enemy can keep, if, if we're that busy, the enemy's work is kind of done. <laughs> Not a whole lot more he has to do because we're so crazy distracted that we've forgotten, hey, why, what is it we're supposed to be doing? You need to get away. You need to spend time with the Lord, time in his word and just re-clarifying, Lord, what is, what is the purpose for which you put me here? Who do you say that I am and what have you called me to do? Now, let's look specifically at these three temptations. Go to verse three, Matthew four, verse three. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's from Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, some, co- some pastors, some commentators will say, really hone in on that what Satan's trying to do is to get Jesus to sort of question his identity, right? If you are the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, then prove it. Others say, well, you could translate that, translate that, you know, because you're the son of God, do this. I think regardless, there, there is truth to the fact that Satan is trying to get Jesus to sort of question this. This is one of his classic tactics, okay? When the enemy tests you, tempts you, tempts me, tries to get us to question our identity, tries to get us to question whether we really are God's son or daughter, whether God really loves us, tries to get us to question God's character, and tries to get us to question God's word. Go all the way back to the garden. What did the enemy do? He didn't come attack Eve, right? A little one of my favorite quotes, right? When he came and he uh, tried to trip Eve up, he didn't come and try to hit her with a stick or he, he hit her with an idea, with a question. He comes to her and says, right, did, did God really say? This is what he does. One pastor said it so beautifully. He tries to get you to doubt your beliefs and believe your doubts. That's what he tries to do. He tries to get you to doubt your beliefs and believe your doubts. And I'll say here in a moment more of this, that you and I need to know and stick to the truth. We need to stick to the truth of who God says we are and who God says he is. Because here's the reality, Satan really can't combat truth. All he can do is try to get you to believe lies. All right? Satan can't undo truth. He can't make it untrue. The trouble is when we don't know it. All he can do is try to get us to believe lies. Now, notice that Satan tells Jesus, right? The specific temptation here, John in his writings talks about uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And some people categorize these kind of into those two things, those three things, right? That this is sort of the lust of the flesh. He's, He's talking about this physical need. And it's not an illegitimate need. Like Jesus does need to eat eventually. 
But right now, Jesus is talking about, he is learning dependence on the Father. He's practicing that. 40 days and 40 nights. I have not given in to this physical need. I'm thinking about the spiritual need. And Satan comes along and says, you don't need to depend on the Lord. You don't need to depend on the Lord. Take it into your own hands. You don't need to learn dependence on the Lord. And Jesus is like, no, Father, I need you more than I need food. I need spiritual more than I need the physical right now. And listen, this is so instructive for us. One of the, again, one of the enemy's tactics, something you'll hear from the world, from the enemy, and from your own sinfulness is you should always put the here and now, the physical over the spiritual and the eternal. You should always be focused on whatever is in front of your face. That's the way this works. And the Lord is always saying, think about what is eternal. Think about what is spiritual. Yes, I know you need the physical, but trust me and I'll take care of all those things. I'll provide for you, but understand the bigger picture and the greater things. You're like, what do you mean? Here's the, here's the way this works. You're driving along in the car, right? And you have this thought where you're like, man, I'm not sure what we're doing as a family right now is, is really good for us from a soul perspective. Maybe we need to slow down. Lord, is what we're doing gonna be helpful for my children and my grandchildren? Hey, Arby's has a new sandwich, neat. I'm serious, right? And then suddenly that, that thought train decimated you're over here. You're like, honey, are you hungry? Let's get lunch. <laughs> and it's distraction. Tell the stones to become bread. You need food. Let's focus on that. Don't think about these things over here. Don't, don't think. Sometimes when it comes to spiritual warfare, guys, we, we tend to think that it's like always this really overt, crazy looking stuff. Most of it happens right here in the battle of the mind. And whether we're going to think about the things that are true and eternal, as opposed to getting distracted by lesser things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of eternity. And Jesus responds back, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm learning dependence on the Father. This is about dependence on the Lord, not about what I physically need right now, but the ultimate spiritual need. So he combats it with truth and with an eternal perspective. Look at the next one, right? Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He quotes from Psalm 91. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 here. Okay, now here's, here's where it gets real interesting, right? You're like, now we got Satan quoting scripture. <laughs> what do we do with that, right? I mean, if he's quoting, like, are we all just in real trouble now? Because it's like, okay, Satan knows the Bible. We're supposed to know the Bible. But if he knows the Bible, are we in real trouble? No, okay? Because again, he can't undo truth. All he can do is twist it and try to get you to believe lies. I'm gonna keep saying that throughout the course of the morning. So what does he do here? He comes and he quotes something, but this is what drives me insane sometimes. False teachers do this all the time. You should be listening for this. They will quote the Bible to disarm you. Well, they quoted the Bible, it's gotta be true, right? You need to take a closer look and say, yeah, is it in context? And does it contradict other things that are clearly taught in the scriptures? Because here's, you go back to Psalm 91. He, the enemy quotes Psalm 91. He's like, how could this be wrong, right? He says he'll command his angels concerning you. They'll bear you up, right, and catch you. Here's how Psalm 91 starts. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then when it gets to this point about he'll command his angels concerning you, it says, whoever dwells in the, in the shadow of the Almighty, whoever declares that the Lord is my refuge. So the whole idea of the psalm is that, man, when you find yourself in times of trouble, when God is your refuge and you look to him rather than to your own power or strength, he will watch over you. It's not about intentionally putting yourself in a time of trouble like, I'm going to throw myself off a building and see if God catches me. That's not at all the purpose of the psalm. And it contradicts what else is said in the word, right? You don't put the Lord your God to the test. It's not about throwing yourself off something. So Satan has twisted this, taken it out of context, and taught something that directly contradicts other scriptures. I mean, this happens all the time. I see it all the time, and I don't want us to be duped by it. So here's what you should be asking. Is it said in context, Right? And does it contradict other things that are very clearly taught in Scripture? I'll give you an example of how this works, right? John 15, 15 tells us that we're Jesus' friend. Jesus has called us friend. Ephesians 1, 5 says that you've been adopted by God. He's adopted you into his family. So what if I come to you and I say, man, I think about the amount of money you make in your life, your health and your wealth. Do you really think Jesus would have any of his friends go through suffering? Do you really think that God would let his sons and daughters not make more than everybody? I mean, you're his sons. That means you're royalty. You should be rich. You should be wealthy and happy and healthy because you're Jesus' friends. Why would Jesus' friends let, let them go through anything hard? You see how sweet that sounds? And I quoted the Bible. The trouble is it just contradicts all the other stuff that Jesus said. Jesus said those things. The Apostle Paul taught those things. And he also said, hey guys, in, in this life, as you follow me, you'll have trouble. In this life, there will be suffering. But in the end, it's going to be worth it. Someday you'll see him face to face and all these sufferings will be considered light and momentary in comparison to the glory there. So you have to know the word, see it in context, and make sure it fits with the rest of the things that are taught in scripture. When people focus, hyper-focus on one aspect of it, out of context, and it clearly, con if you hear somebody say something, even when they quote the Bible, me, <laughs> if you hear it and you're like, I don't feel like that fits with the other things I've taught in scripture, you ought to pay attention to that and go test it for yourself in the word. And then note Jesus's response, right? As the enemy quotes Psalm 91, Psalm 91, he quotes Deuteronomy 6. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Hopefully you're starting to see the pattern here, right? Every time that the enemy tries to tempt Jesus to sin by twisting the truth, questioning his identity, or just outright lying, Jesus combats it with the word, with truth. Look at the third temptation, Matthew 4 verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So here's where the enemy shows his true colors, right? I want you to worship me, not God, worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6 again. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. All right, there's a lot that just happened here, so let's try to unpack it. Um, one, it's kind of ironic. Satan offers Jesus something that really already belongs to Jesus, <laughs> right? You can have all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, right? That's what Jesus is going to get on the other side of the cross. 
But notice how Satan tries to do this. Two, two things. One, he, at some point, now, now is just the outright lie, the outright, no, worship me, which is idolatry, right? And Jesus combats that quickly, right? You worship the Lord God and him only. Notice also that the enemy is trying to offer Jesus a crossless path to glory. You can have the glory and the power, but you could, you could totally circumvent the cross. You don't have to die for sinners. You don't have to fulfill this mission. You don't have to lay down your life for others. I can give you a path to glory that's easy and without suffering, which again is sort of a classic tactic of the enemy, offering you, right, glory and <laughs> power, prestige and fame, no suffering, a life of ease. But that's just not the way of the cross. Jesus, Jesus stayed the course and stayed the mission. And as he calls us to be his followers, he tells us, pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. So he responds, obviously, right, with this, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. You've failed Satan and it's time for you to go. Maybe this is just my brain. I think about Luke Skywalker and the emperor at that moment, right? <laughs> Where he looks at him and he says, right, you've failed your highness, right? For I'm a Jedi like my father before me. And it's just sort of climactic moment where Jesus just looks at him and says, man, you failed. <laughs> Get out of here. You worship God and God alone. Two things I want to point out. I've said both of them already, but let's just hone in on them again. Number one, know the word. Know the word. And this is back to that Christ as example. Right? The point of the passage is not primarily, hey, study your Bible. <laughs> I'll talk about that here in a moment. But I do think it would be wrong for us to miss this point. Guys, Jesus is tired, hungry, weary. He's been tempted for 40 days by the devil himself. But when he gets squeezed, what comes out of him? The word, right? So I heard an analogy one time. It's always stuck with me. It's like, just think of a tube of toothpaste. <laughs> when you squeeze it, whatever's on the inside is coming out. So can I ask you, what, what comes out of your life and your heart when the circumstances of life squeeze you? Is it anger, frustration, selfishness? Does the word come out? I have to ask myself that. And the, and the way that, say, Lord, I want the word to come out. Of, I, want, I want scripture to come out of me when life squeezes me. The way that that happens is that before the squeezing happens, you're filling yourself with the word. And you're meditating on the word. This is so, so important, right? Please realize the time for preparing for a test is not the day the test comes right? For any of us, you can remember all the way back to high school. Some of you are there now, like you're sitting down to take the ACT. In that moment, you don't prepare in that moment. You got, just got to get myself ready for the ACT. It's like, it's here. <laughs> Either you prepared for it or you didn't. For those of us who maybe, if you ever signed up to run a marathon, right? When you step on the line, you got 26 miles in front of you, like you've either prepared or you haven't. And you will be found out very quickly, right? A few miles in, it'll be very evident. You've either prepared for that moment or you haven't. And so all throughout the word, we see the Lord telling us, man, prepare. Test of the apostle Paul to Timothy says, guys, train for godliness. He tells them, right, physical training, it's of some value. Running, working out, eating healthy, it's of some value. But he says training for righteousness, training for godliness is of value in every way, shape, and form, both in this life and in the life to come. And then in Ephesians 6, as he talks about engaging in the spiritual fight of the faith, he says, put on the armor. Prepare for the moment of testing. Prepare for the moment of temptation by putting on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, 
breastplate of righteousness, preaching your, your gospel identity to yourself, knowing who you are in Christ. And then he says the shield of faith, right? Put on the shield of faith. And sometimes I hear people, right? Because after that he goes on and he says, right? And take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word. The word of God. That's the only offensive weapon in the entire set of armor. The only one, he says, now you can go on the offense and combat what the enemy is doing. Sometimes I hear people, and it seems to me the thought process is, I don't really need to study the Bible. I'm not really a reader or listen to it. Like, I've just got faith. That's good. You're supposed to take up the shield of faith. But that's like a basketball team saying, we don't have any shooters on the team, but we play great defense. We can't score, but we're great defenders. It's like, good. We held every team to 10 points this year. We scored zero, but it's like you still lost. In order to win, you have to have an offensive weapon. And for us, that's the word. That's the word. Know the word. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word. Spend time in study of the word. Listen to the word. Get it into your soul and know the truth. And I'll just say what I've already said several times. The enemy cannot combat truth. All he can do is try to get you to believe lies. All he can do is try to twist it, to try to question, did God really say? I was reflecting even this morning, just how different things would have been. Can you imagine if in the garden, right? Like he's like, did God really say if Adam had been like, let me tell you exactly what God said. <laughs> God said this. Did God really say you can't eat that? Yes, he did. <laughs> did God really say, he did, you're not gonna die. No, he really said that. The problem is when we don't know the word, we are more susceptible to those lies when we don't know the word. When we know the word and we'll use it, that's part of the Holy Spirit's role in our life is to bring to our remembrance the things Jesus said. So when those lies come up in your mind and you're like, something about that's off, you can identify it, combat it, rob it of its power. Know the word. Here's the second thing, right? And really the overarching point. Jesus knew his mission and he stayed the course. Jesus knew his mission and he stayed the course. He passed the test for you and me. The Old Testament is just filled with stories of people who faithful in some ways, but in some ways failed. David, Abraham, Moses, Joshua. I mean, I'm, I'm reading the Old Testament right now and they all complete the mission in part, but in some way they fail. They have some epic failure. Christ is the only one who's victorious in every way, passed the test in every way. Jeff Huff and I were talking this week. Jeff is, uh, was on staff here at LifePoint for a long time. He's teaching at one of our other campuses this day. And he and I were discussing this text. And he said, you know, Cale, I think sometimes we think that because Jesus was tired and hungry that he must have been like dazed and confused at the end. And he said, nothing could really be further from the truth. He may be tired, he may be hungry, but he is laser focused. Once again, that's what time away with God does for you. It clears your head. Right? Gives you perspective and clarity on what am I here to do again? What has God put me on this earth for? And you can tell Jesus is laser focused on what his mission is. And he's specifically thinking, we've said it, about Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8 is Moses speaking at the end of his life to the second generation of Israel after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And there's all these parallels between he's talking to them about their experience. He's like, you guys put God to the test? 
which Jesus refused to do. You guys gave in to your physical need. You're complaining about physical hunger. We don't have bread. We don't have water. They want to undo the exodus and go back to Egypt and worship there. I mean, everything that they failed, Jesus succeeded in. In fact, let me read it to you because there's just so many wonderful parables. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. Moses looks at them and says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do. You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, took you out in the wilderness and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. There's, do you see these, some of these parallels? This is the time of discipline for Christ. Israel was often called God's son. God takes them out in the wilderness and tests them and they fail spectacularly. Jesus, the son, takes them out not 40 years, but 40 days in the wilderness. And at every point that Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus passed the test. He was obedient to the father here at the Mount of Temptation, in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the way to the Mount of Calvary, where he would die on a cross for your sin and for mine. You say, what does all this mean then? <laughs> One, several things, and we'll close with this. One means Satan's a defeated foe, right? We just sang this. We're fighting a battle that you've already won. <laughs> the enemy can't make you do anything. You don't have to give in to temptation. You walk in the victory that Jesus already bought for you. All right, some of us need to hear this this morning. You are so broken, so down, so frustrated, and you feel like such a failure. You need to be reminded, the author of Hebrews tells us this, that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And because he succeeded, because he was obedient to the Father, we come to him, he who understands us, and we cry out for help. We've got this great high priest who understands our weaknesses, and he can help you. You cry out to him, there's grace and there's mercy to help in time of need. So as you experience, as you and I experience trial and temptation and we're tempted to think, I'm just never gonna change. I can't win this battle. No, it's already been won. You need to walk in the victory Jesus has bought for you. He was faithful, died on the cross for your sins, rose again that you might have new life in him. And in every way in which the Old Testament, you see the failures, Jesus succeeded and he is now our great high priest who intercedes for us before the throne. So cry out to him for help. As you walk the Christian life, as you live the Christian life, you walk this walk, as you fight the good fight, yes, know the word, know your identity in Christ, but cry out to your heavenly father, cry out to your great high priest, Jesus, and know he understands. He suffered like you and I do. He was tempted like you and I are, and he won. And he can help you. There's grace and there's mercy in time of need. So today, now, I'm gonna pray for us right now cry out to him and say, Jesus, in my suffering, in my testing, in my temptation, help me. Give me grace and help in time of need. Let's pray together.
Father, we do come before you right now in the name of Jesus. And God, I want to give an opportunity uh, just for anyone who wants to pray this with me. Lord, in the temptation, in the trial, in the time of testing, Jesus, we thank you that you were victorious. Jesus, we thank you that you were faithful. Jesus, we thank you that you stared down the cross and you walked toward it. And Jesus, we ask you for help in time of need. Jesus, there are some of us today who are um, got enslaved in, in bondage. Father, held by certain sins, certain struggles, repeatedly falling into temptation. God, I'm asking that today you would break some of those chains. God, I'm asking for those who don't know you at all today, that they would today turn from sin and trust you and start walking in the freedom you've bought for them. And God, I pray for those who are here right now who know you and love you, but who are not taking up the sword of the Spirit, who are too busy to hear from you, and who have believed the lie that they must give in. Jesus, today I pray that your strength would show up in their lives. God, please. Father, we love you, and we do ask for help in every way, shape, and form, God, in time of need. Why don't you just take a moment and pray? You speak that specific moment of suffering or temptation to him. Lord, take a moment just to say to him what it is. You don't have to say it out loud, but say it silently. Lord, you see this. You see this area of suffering in my life. Lord, you see this area of temptation in my life. Lord, you see this area of struggle in my life. You see, Lord, where I have said yes and I've listened to the enemy time and time again. Will you confess that to him today? Take a moment and ask the Lord. Say, Lord, by your spirit, will you bring to mind what is true? What lie have I believed, God, that you want me to stop believing that today and replace it with the truth of your word? Will you commit to the Father today to slow down? For those of us that are just running, life is just one long stream of busyness and distraction. Maybe filled with many good things, but there's no time for the most important things. Take a moment now in silence and in solitude and ask the Lord, God, will you help me to leave here and not just go back into the crazy fray, but to slow down and take intentional times with you.
Father, you've heard the prayers of your people. We humbly ask forgiveness for so often turning our eyes from you and so often believing things, God, that are simply untrue, things you never said. And God, we ask today that you would change us from the inside out. And Jesus, today we thank you for the price you paid, for the victory you won, for the way you suffered in our place. and for the grace and the help you offer in time of need. Lord, we love you. And I ask that you would take what people have heard today, whatever notes we've written down, whatever moments, God, I I believe single moments and single sentences can change the trajectory of someone's life. So I ask God that you would seal that up today and you would help us to act on whatever you've spoken to us today, not to leave here and just go back to the norm, but rather leave here with a step, with a change in thinking. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.